0: Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. I'm so excited to introduce this week's guest, Jennifer Fitzwater. Jennifer spent the last 30 years in public service, but I first met her in 2003 when she was the Legislative Affairs Director of the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. She would go on to become the Chief of Staff of that agency and ultimately retired as the Chief of Staff of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Now on to the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thanks, Brett. Glad to be here. So you retired from public service last September after a 30-year run state government. How's Retired Life treating you? Retired
1: Life is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, Retired Life is great, Brett.
0: Well, before we started recording, you talked about how that happened, which was like the immediate decompression (laughs) going to, was it Europe?
1: I did. I um, I went to Europe. Uh, so the short version of the long story is I retired on Friday, <laughs> Saturday. I was on an airplane to France where we spent three, two two and a half weeks.
0: Wow. Awesome. So, yeah,
1: it was easy to kind of walk away and change, get a change in the mindset.
0: Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to some of that mindset in a little bit. But I want to start by going all the way back to the beginning. And you were born in St. Louis, Missouri, which I did not know um, before I saw your, your bio. But you still have immediate family there, right?
1: I do. All of my uh, immediate family, my father and my brother, both still are in St. Louis. So I go there somewhat regularly nice. to, to visit folks and, you know, kind of go, go to the old stomping grounds.
0: What was Jennifer Fitzwater like as a kid? Did you, I mean, did you enjoy the outdoors? Were you an athlete?
1: I did. I was an athlete from when I was very young. I started gymnastics when I was five. So there was, you know, a lot of that. But as far as, um, you know, family life and growing up in my neighborhood, we were always outside. Our neighborhood had woods right behind the neighborhood and a big field. So... Me and the neighborhood kids were always out getting into trouble. Sure. And family every year, our vacations, we went camping to all the state parks throughout Missouri. So we spent a lot of time outside.
0: There's some gorgeous ones there too. Oh. What was what was your favorite in around Um
1: there? when I was a kid, um, Elephant Rocks State Park, which is southeast part of the state was always a fun one merrimack river state park that was close to st louis but uh, i had an opportunity a couple months ago to go back up to missouri in the south central part of missouri to go to one of their newest state parks echo bluff state park Mm. and that is beautiful it is absolutely gorgeous it's in the ozark mountains kind of midway between poplar bluff and springfield
0: wow you mentioned gymnastics you're a competitive rower. as long as I've known you. You've been a competitive rower. Did you do rowing back then as well, or other sports you, other than the gymnastics?
1: No. Um, growing up, it was mostly gymnastics. We did a little did a little bit of track and field, um, but nothing nothing as much as you know gymnastics. Um, I started rowing in 1998 here in Tallahassee. Hmm. So, you know, after I was out of college, had a job, been working for a few years. I saw a little ad in the newspaper in the Tallahassee Democrat. Hey, did you ever want to learn how to row? Hmm. And I was like, oh, I want to do that.
0: So going back to Missouri, you got your undergraduate degree in Missouri. Tell me about, I want to understand the distinction. You know, I just think it's all Mizzou, but is, is, in in my mind, (laughs) is, is University of Missouri Columbia?
1: Univers- University of Missouri-Columbia is what people think of as Mizzou. Mm.
0: Um,
1: and yes, that's where I did my undergraduate work.
0: But you ended up at Auburn University for graduate school, is that right? Correct. How did you get, why yeah. Auburn? Like, why How did you Auburn? get to Auburn? Yeah,
1: Great question. Um, when I was at the University of Missouri, my undergraduate degree was in fisheries and wildlife science. And I wanted to, after I got my bachelor's degree, I wanted to go on to get my master's degree. And so I was looking for professors around the country in wildlife programs that were doing research on things that I wanted to work on. And there was a professor at Auburn University doing waterfowl research. So I went down to work with him. That was really how I got to Auburn. It had nothing to do with the school itself right. or the location it was all about going down and working with him
0: oh that's i mean that's really you know that's cool to you know to see something like that then then go after it in that way
1: it was a little bit of a culture shock i guess growing up in st louis i don't know if you've ever been to auburn but in 19 let me see if i get this right 1986 mm-hmm. it was really small
0: i have a a cousin and uh i don't know if she'll hear this podcast ever but she went to auburn university uh, the same time and was in uh, some of the same classes as bo jackson bo Jackson, <laughs> and so it was that same period i never i, I never went to to visit i guess my bad cousin in that way um but she seemed to love it but I, it was a small school right
1: the school it's, i mean auburn was the school I mean, you know, the town, it was there, you know, at least when I was there, it's certainly grown since I've been there.
0: So your your undergrad and your graduate degrees, both in some, and yeah, and so obviously, when you you took your master's degree in wildlife science, uh, you know, under your belt, you obviously go to law school.
1: Obviously, because that's what everyone did. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Did any of your classmates go to law school? That no, yeah. <laughs>
1: and I don't know anyone in the wildlife program, whether Missouri or at Auburn, that's ever gone to law school. Nor have I met a fellow lawyer that has a wildlife degree. So, no, it was not the most common thing to do.
0: Yeah. Well, so why?
1: So when I was, as I mentioned, when I went to Auburn, it was to do uh, to work with my major professor mm. on waterfowl research. I quickly learned that I didn't have the patience to do field work and data collection. My master's thesis was dealing with wood ducks and their nesting behavior. Mm-hmm. And to get enough data to be significantly, statistically significant, you had to do two years worth of data collection. And I knew what the answer to, the, to my <laughs> hypothesis was going to be two months in. So I, yeah, I didn't have the patience to do it. Well,
0: that's the, that's the magic of being an attorney, I hear, is being, being right both all the time and immediately. So <laughs> play, play into your strengths there then.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So right out of law school, you go straight to the Department of Environmental Regulation. Correct. How long was that before it merged you know, with DNR to become DEP as we know it now?
1: I started with the Department of Environmental Regulation in October of 92. The, um, a couple of things happened. Um, the secretary at the time when I started was Carol Browner. Um, President Clinton tapped her to be secretary of EPA December of 92, and she was confirmed in January of 93. That year... Ninety-three, the Florida legislature combined Department of Natural Resources and Department of Environmental Regulation. So I can't, I think that was a March, May session. So, you know, starting May is when that transition started to take place. So, you know, six months in, I was at a new place.
0: That's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, did, what did you feel like there was some sort of bait and switch? Or was it just like, hey, uh, you know, I'm right out of law school. This is how it's going to be. And you just yeah, go, go it. The-
1: was. it was just we, we all went with the flow. I mean, for the most part, the two agencies were doing. So I was in the legal office at the time. So all of the lawyers that were with the Department of Environmental Regulation, they were dealing with. You know, regulatory aspects of things. DNR, they were dealing with totally different things. So it wasn't like uh, there was a turf war over who's going to get the job to do whatever. We were all just doing very different things.
0: Were they shocked to have... So you have the merge and your DER and these DNR scientists are looking over and they find out this lawyer... Uh, is actually a scientist. I mean, did that help in that that merge period or to give you street cred uh, with your DNR partners?
1: Um, you know, honestly, at the beginning of the merger, I didn't really have a whole lot of interaction with m- many of the DNR folks. Um, again, I was working when I started in the general counsel's office, I was working on water issues. So mostly, Industrial wastewater issues um, so when we merged, I was still doing those kinds of things so i didn't now, I can say certainly a wildlife degree wasn't um, of any particular uh, import to you know industrial wastewater, but the <laughs> science behind it, I think, was helpful, if for no other reason than just to understand conversations that people were having right. and you know kind of have that basic science background was mm-hmm. helpful
0: for for people like me who do not have, you know, uh, hard sciences background. It, it takes you a lot longer to learn the vocabulary and sure. a, lot, a lot more listening to understand what what folks are saying. But you mentioned the type of case. Um, I think at one point you mentioned you also worked on uh, Everglades related issues. Um, or was it largely just, hey, we're, you know, we're just doing compliance issues and, and things like that.
1: So I did a, a, a little bit of um a little bit of all of it. So kind of the trajectory, if you will, hmm. um when I started, I was I also handled some domestic wastewater issues. Those aren't really very exciting and they're all you know, pretty similar around the state.
0: Give me, but some it, poor some poor utility guy out there saying, like but I but, think but, it's but, exciting.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're very I mean, they're important, yeah, but important. you know, it's not glamorous headline unless, of course, there's yes. you know some sort of spill or something. I was very fortunate that I got to work on some pretty high profile cases in the industrial wastewater area. So, worked on a couple big paper mill cases, um, a lot of phosphate mm-hmm. industry cases, um, and I got to work on and I. I you may remember this from a long time ago, but I had an opportunity to work on a project. I think this was like mid-90s, mid to late 90s. It was uh, in Tampa Bay. It was the Tampa Tampa Water Resource Recovery Project. And it was a fascinating project that I think was just way ahead of its time. Hmm. It was an indirect potable reuse project. Oh, okay. Um, but the process that they used or that we used was just very different, and it was designed that so that everybody, all the regulators from the federal, state, and local side of things, mm-hmm. all of the engineers from the project side of things, all of the public were together throughout the entire process. Wow. So that at the end, every permit was going to be issued at one time, and... It was a fascinating project. Um, it took a lot of work and a lot of time. Mm. <laughs> a lot of people were involved. And unfortunately, it was just, I say it was ahead of its time because people were not ready. People in the Tampa Bay region were not ready to, you know, take Howard F. Curran wastewater and put it in the Hillsborough River just upstream from the water, drinking water intake.
0: That, But that issue as, as all issues do are back right it's and, back. and I think the, the level of uh, discomfort is is it, changed to, to something else to maybe a rec- more of a recognition of reality in that sense.
1: I think so. I think so. I think back then it was just so uh, we weren't in the position that we are now with our water resources. Mm-hmm. So I think there's just more acceptance of hey, we're going to really have to, to be creative. Mm-hmm. To provide for our water supply issues,
0: it seems like that that process is a an interesting one and one that I've seen a few times. And I uh, I'm going to throw an acronym out there, not knowing what it stands for. E T D M. Do you remember? Oh yeah,
1: efficient transportation decision something Make, making matrix.
0: Probably Yeah, or probably matrix.
1: yeah.
0: Matrix sounds more fun.
1: Matrix does sound more fun.
0: But but that mean but that was it's a successful way of bringing people it into is. understanding the, the and it's surprising that that's not used more often
1: well it was a it was a hard process <laughs> because not only so you you you've got a couple of different state agencies and so for that particular project you had a couple of different state agencies you had the federal government there so you had the corps of engineers you had the environmental protection agency so you, that comes with all of the federal rules of mm. what they can talk about and what they can share in an open forum and then you have pub the public i mean it was it, it's a lot of work it's a lot of work
0: yeah and then the 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 disappointment at getting to the end of it. And it's like, okay, well, that, that, was, well, that fun. Was, really it was fun. It was great. It was great working with all of you. Uh, I
1: got a piece of the, I got a square of the carpet from the room we were in. Oh, really? As a That's <laughs> hilarious. It's so a memento.
0: Fair enough. Um,
1: all that to say, I had um, I had a real opportunity because of the bosses that I had, that they let me work on some of these projects, which then led me into working on Everglades issues.
0: Nice. And, and the assumption is that over that period of time, uh, you show yourself capable of working across uh, other agencies, working on big issues. And that leads me to when I met you. I think it was probably two, 2002, 2003 at the latest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were already the Legislative Affairs Director uh, at the department. Right. Um, but th- that had started... Pretty soon before that, is that right?
1: It started, um, I started working on legislative issues while I was still in the general counsel's office. Hmm. Um, The general counsel at the time really uh, had the foresight to go to the legislative affairs director and say, hey, it would be really helpful if you had a lawyer helping with Reviewing legislation, drafting legislation, helping on, on that end um, on a full-time basis. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly there was always the consultative process where, you know, they'd sure. come back. and, But just having somebody to do it full-time. So I started working with the Legislative Affairs Department probably around ninety nine, okay. maybe 1999, um, which then led to doing um, congressional work. In the ninety nine two thousand era, which um, was a going back to Everglades, Right. you know that was when that was the time period when uh, SERP was being negotiated, written, and developed. So,
0: wow! what an, I mean, what an interesting time, though, to be put into a, a position like that.
1: Yeah, it was uh, surprising to me, uh, honestly, um, because I was, you know. Didn't even have ten years under my belt, mm-hmm. um, and it was hey, go to Washington, figure this stuff out.
0: <laughs> Is, so then, you've demonstrated another facet of aptitude. Then, in terms of dealing with uh, you know big, hairy legislative issues, um, policy issues, and. So I was going to ask like did is it, it was that transition hard going from what you were doing before to being in the guts of an agency to to being in front of legislators but you were doing that you were you were essentially already doing that except yeah. on a more federal level and then did you get pulled into some of those conversations with the state legislature as well during that period
1: I did I did okay. I had um the legislative affairs director at the time Uh, was gracious enough to allow me to be part of the conversation and to have that opportunity. So before I became legislative affairs director, I I had some, Mm -hmm. some experience. And, you know, as I talk about all of these things that I've worked on, recognize, you know, Everglades, SERP, all of these things, there's an awful lot of people involved in all of these projects oh for right sure. so for it's sure. not like i have not single-handedly <laughs> done
0: anything <laughs> sure sure and we were talking earlier I'm like there's you know what uh you people or something like that I, yeah. I don't know how many were you know dp in 2000 oh, but i don't either a lot a still lot. um and for something that big obviously there has to be a big team but but you then become well let me ask you first who was that legislative affairs director before you mike Joyner. oh well, oh my goodness was it and so in and, and so he's the kind of guy that would uh provide you the slack to go out there and 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 learn and and be a part of stuff then.
1: absolutely he was the the best mentor i have ever had
0: that's awesome awesome i i, did, I don't know why i didn't but i did not know that
1: yeah and
0: um he this is how I think of my timing, is
1: by what governor was in office. (laughs) So Governor Bush's second term, Mike went into chief of staff position. Mm -hmm. And so he asked me to be the legislative affairs director, which, you know, he and I both thought, well, this is going to be an interesting, you know, when you step out of a role and give Mm -hmm. it to somebody else, are you going to continue to, like, come back well maybe you should do this way right it it was seamless i mean he was so respectful of the way i wanted to do things and the changes i wanted to make um and it worked out very well
0: and that's yeah that's that's great and so you become the essentially the voice of the agency certainly when it comes to uh other agencies to the legislature to the governor's office for sure right um uh, you know, I spent very little time in those days talking to Mike Jorner and and a great deal of time talking <laughs> to you uh, as you're trying to teach me what the heck is going on. Um, and uh, you were ni- you were you were nicer than I deserved in those days. I think. So you went on to become chief of staff at DEP. Let's let's go ahead since you're time stamping based on governor. Which governor's office was that when you became? Chief of Staff, do you recall? Chief
1: of Staff was under Governor Scott. Right. So I had a a, a stint in there as Deputy Secretary under Governor Christ.
0: Doing which, which uh, dep sec job?
1: Um, well, it doesn't really exist at this point anymore, I don't think. So it was um, kind of the, it, we called it policy and planning. So we okay. had legislative affairs, intergovernmental programs, which was at the time our liaison with um, Department of Community Affairs or their predecessor parts. Um, It was a lot of the administrative pieces and parts of the agency, so IT, HR, those kinds of Mm -hmm. things. And then when I became chief of staff, I kind of had this weird thing of just taking everything with me everywhere. Um, Those (laughs) things all transferred to the chief of staff, so that we could have the opportunity to create the now deputy secretary for ecosystem restoration. Okay,
0: and I was going to ask, like, what does a chief of staff do at uh, at Dep? And so, but but I think do they do they get a portfolio the same way that. you know, someone who is a deputy secretary would be, or is it really taking on different things depend, depending yeah. on what's necessary at the moment?
1: I think it depends on the agency, and it depends on uh, the person running the agency. Mm-hmm. So, I can only really speak to DEP and to FWC. Mm-hmm. At DEP, I had my own portfolio of. Legislative affairs, still had all the administrative pieces. So budget, um, HR, IT, purchasing, all of those things. But also along with that, it was kind of the uh, crisis du jour. Sure. You know, what's, what's, what's happening at that time, uh, what needs to, where your attention needs to be. So it was kind of uh, one of the, people always ask, so what does a chief of staff do? And I never really know how to answer that question because I can't, I I don't have a very narrowly defined answer. Again, I think you can go to, right now, any different state agency and the chiefs of staff all do different things.
0: I bet, I bet. And I think it also, my assumption would be it's, it's based on, those strengths there. Somebody, somebody yes. may not bother. Like you, you were really good, and you spent many years uh, working the department's budget through the legislative process. Right. And so it makes sense that you know you would handle budget, legislative affairs. Was communications also part of that as well, or is that just hey those folks work directly for the secretary, or did you have to work closely with them to to work on those crises as they as they always yeah. do have?
1: Honestly, in the reporting structure at DEP, I don't remember. Hmm. That was that was too long ago. Under <laughs> at FWC, uh, they did fall under the chief of staff. Now, you know, organizational structure is. I don't. I don't know. I don't get hung up on organizational structure. Yeah, right? I, I, it's I, it's yeah. a it's a map. It's a picture on a piece of paper. So if there's something that's um, you know, a hot topic issue that you need to respond to or need to put out information mm. on, you know, that's certainly going to go through the secretary's office at DEP, including the chief of staff or the executive director's office at FWC.
0: Sure, sure. Well, uh, to get away from the structural yeah. kind of more boring part into you know, maybe something a little more, like what was your favorite worst crisis or your worst favorite crisis however you want to however you want to phrase it what was a big issue that popped up while you were sitting in in that chair that chief of staff chair because every year was nothing but a crisis for 60 days in, yeah. that, in that building when you were a legislative affairs director but what was maybe one of those existential kind of crises that you two dealt? of
1: them come immediately to mind um one is hurricanes mm. so that that Hurricanes, whether it's the two thousand four two thousand five season, whether it's hurricane, you know, whatever, yeah, whichever, whichever one, that's your focus, right? Right. Um, the other major event that took an awful lot of time, an awful lot of focus, was the Deepwater Horizon mm. oil spill.
0: Did you see that one all the way through from from that chair? Was because it seems like the yes. timing is right for that. Yeah. Yes.
1: The accident was in 2010. I was in the deputy secretary position at the time. Mike Soule was the secretary of DEP at the time. Um, so yeah, saw another, that one. All another the way good through. one.
0: Mike Soul, another 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 good one out there. But uh, and so I think. Your work on Deepwater Horizon ended up taking you to Fish and Wildlife, did it not? Or, or it is it sort of, you know, sort of joined, but not necessarily?
1: It did. Um, so when, when that event happened, um, the governor named the state trustees for response and recovery as DEP and Fish and Wildlife. I'm just going to call it Fish and Wildlife or FWC because Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission is too much of a mouthful. You got
0: it. You got it once, everyone out there. So (laughs) it's FWC from now on.
1: At the time, DEP, we had a number of dedicated staff working on nothing but oil spill. So there was a long time in negotiations on how to uh, settle any civil and criminal disputes with yeah. the responsible parties. And then once that happened, then how do you go into uh, restoration activities? Yeah. So there was a, there was a team at, at DEP. FWC did not have a dedicated team. They had, you know, pulled staff from their real jobs and said, hey, go here. That, and so what happened was the executive director at the time, said, I want to have one person kind of coordinate all of the activities at FWC. Mm -hmm. And um, that one person was the executive director, Nick Wiley, Mm -hmm. who I happened to know through my time at Auburn University. And
0: Uh, were you there at the same time or?
1: um, He was leaving as I was coming in. I see. um, But we but we knew each other. And I, I wanted to get back to kind of more my roots. Right, more mm-hmm. wildlife fisheries issues, um, and and more uh, substantive, you know, as opposed to what what happened yesterday that we have to respond to.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, so I went over to the Commission FWC, excuse me, in 2013 to be their Gulf Restoration Coordinator.
0: Okay.
1: And work continue to work with DEP, with the other for Gulf states and all the federal agencies and whatever on oil spill related issues.
0: And so that that, that sort of stuck was it uh, just a, a chance of timing who was uh, who was your predecessor when you ended up becoming the chief of staff there?
1: My pre- um, at FWC the chief of staff when I went there retired. And Nick came and said, hey, I want you to be chief of staff. And I said, no way. I don't want to do that. I've done that before. I don't want to do it again. And he said, oh, go on vacation, but don't make any decisions. <laughs> and uh, I came back from vacation, and he talked me into doing it.
0: Was it the idea of, of hey, after all this time, to be able to use that education and deal directly with you know wildlife, fish, habitat issues, things like that?
1: Yeah, I think so. I I didn't want to get back into procurement issues. Um, you know, the the really important things that uh, are required to run an agency, yeah. but they're not, you know, they're not the the fun exciting issues that people think about when sure. you think about FWC, right? You yeah. know, think about bid protests or you know, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff.
0: I hear, you, I hear you. Um, one of the things I've always been uh, curious about, and seeing seeing some of the uh, vagaries from the governor's office side of of things um, when I was there, was the relationship between FWC commissioners and their staffs. Um, <laughs> As well as the relationship between the commission itself and, say, the governor's office, because it always seemed a bit different. You know, being a guy that ended up in a couple of water management districts, mm-hmm. uh, there was a. It seemed to be like the the that relationship that dichotomy worked a little bit differently than it does there. Do I have that wrong?
1: I n- never had the opportunity to work at a water management district, so I, I'm going to generalize from my viewpoint. Sure. Um, I think they are. Probably more similar than they are different. My sense from you know engaging with the water management districts throughout my career, the governing board members uh, probably have a lot of day to day interaction not amongst themselves, mm-hmm. but with the executive director, and that happens at the commission too. So the commission and the executive director are in touch quite regularly. Um, they are also in touch very regularly with the colonel of our law enforcement of the okay. law enforcement section because there's so much that happens there they don't themselves have a whole lot of interaction with the governor's
0: office mm. it seems odd. you have the you have commissioners that obviously they're appointed by the governor right. but it's a it's a bit of a different it, it it was always described you know what fish was like we're a constitutional agency and therefore you know, it's a little bit different in some unknown way to me, you know, from, say, the relationship the, yes. go- the governor has to you know, some of these other places.
1: The commission derives its power very differently than the water management districts or any other state agency. As you mentioned, the commission is a constitutionally created agency, which really means the legislature can't pass any laws um, that would... Usurp that authority. Now, there are the interesting thing is there are parts of the commission that are legislatively based, hmm. law enforcement uh, penalties. You know, some are outlined in the Constitution. But from a day to day operational, uh, how we interact as a as a constitutional authority, and I say we, you mm. can tell I'm I'm not completely. <laughs> Out of you know, out of retirement yeah. uh, or in retirement yet. Um, from a day to day perspective, it's it's really not that much different. I mean, we we need to we coordinate with the governor's office. I right. mean, you coordinate with the legislature. I mean, they're still in charge of the budget, so it's not like we're gonna you know run out and do something crazy.
0: Is that something that that? They could do without running afoul of the state constitution, which is say, hey, let's assume that fish and wildlife did something that someone didn't like. They said, well, I've got we're going to fix you because you're not going to change this thing. I'm going to take away all of your all of your budget. Is that even something that they could do or that would that run afoul of the constitution?
1: No, that is I mean, the legislature has the ultimate authority over the budget. Um, They have the authority over. Uh, the setting of penalties and license fees. So, yeah, I mean, Mm. that is certainly something that could happen. Has it happened? Not to my knowledge. But, you know, given that weird dichotomy, I mean, you still you're a state agency. Mm -hmm. You still have to work with your other state agency brethren. Right. You still have to work with the legislature. You still have to work with the governor's office.
0: Sure. Right. And I know I'm throwing, it's kind of unfair of throwing some, you know, hypothetical out there, but I'm just, I'm curious, I'm guessing, uh, you know, maybe a few other people out there might be curious about what actually happens when things go wrong. Like what happens at a, you know, water management district or fish and wildlife, right. but, um, but yeah, it's like the, I mean, the, na- the natural course of things is you're part of a constellation of agencies that, right. that, have s- different missions but congruent, you know, missions um, Correct. to each other. And so, I think yeah, I think that makes total sense what you're saying. For another perhaps unfair question, you've been out for about 6 months and but a, a huge topic for people when you think about fish and wildlife is manatees. And so, manatee populations historically over some really low levels for a while uh, a few decades ago. Reached record highs, and then that record kept going up and up. And we're thinking, great, things are going really well. And then the last few years, significant crash, die-offs, not not from the usual suspects as much, which is boat propellers and, right. and hulls, but but things like starvation. Right? Um, can, can you? Can, can you talk about that just a, sure. a little bit in terms of what the response was like and what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so when you were correct when you said, you know, historically manatee populations were very low. Um, through a variety of measures, the population increased. It increased enough that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service took the manatee off the endangered species list. What you saw over the last couple years was what what is called... Um, an unusual mortality event, which is a, a, a declaration by the federal by the federal agency of something that is happening in a portion of the population that needs to be addressed. Mm. And so, what happened was on the East Coast, most highlighted in the Indian River Lagoon, mm. we had some die-offs because of loss of seagrass and cold weather. So you had a bunch of manatees hanging out in areas where they had no food. So unusual measures were taken um, starting last winter. So what is that? Mm -hmm. 21-22, which involved an experimental feeding in areas in an area of the state, which has continued this year.
0: Is there a danger that the manatees go back on on the list because of this? Or do you think it's Hey, if we if we sort out the problems going on in, uh, in any river lagoon, that will be we'll find our way around it, and we'll get back to a healthier overall population. I have I know. absolutely I
1: just... no idea what the Fish and Wildlife Service. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that um, <clears throat> at least as of six months ago, there was no discussion about even you know even contemplating bringing uh, the manatee back. On onto the endangered list. That's
0: fair enough. Uh, shout out to current Fish and Wildlife. We'll be talking eventually. <laughs> um, but speaking of, from that perspective as well, meaning, yeah. and Fish and Wildlife wasn't the only agency looking at uh, manatees as well. You have D. Absolutely not.
1: I mean, and that was go back to what I said earlier when you know this is this is a big team effort on everything. Manatee issue was a huge team effort. We not only had other state agencies, so water management districts, DEP. We had, you know, um, Indian River Lagoon National Estuarine mm. Program. We had the federal agencies involved, and we had private sector and other nonprofits involved. So I mean, it was mm. it was a kind of all hands on deck.
0: And so, to that end, a lot of agencies and NGOs involved, probably the private sector as well, involved in trying to figure out. How to be red tide or at least stem you know stem the impacts because there's always right. as, as long as I can recall being a kid, I grew up you know in this state. Uh, there's always been red tide, but it seems like it's getting a little worse and a little worse or exasperated in some ways, and so we're looking at trying to figure that out. What did that look like while you were still at fish and wildlife?
1: Red tide it was a, a pretty uh, significant it's been a pretty significant issue over the last gosh eight years almost. Mm. I can't remember the year we had one of the longest red tides in history. I mean, they're they're usually very cyclic, right? So Mm -hmm. a couple of months every fall, early part of winter, you know, a couple Mm -hmm. of months here and there. They've been hanging around a little bit longer. So we have, as a state, put a significant amount of resources into trying to one, figure out, I think of it this way, there's two, I, two component parts of red tide. So there's the research, what it is, what triggers it, what, you know, are there conditions that need to be present? Is it, you know, is it a hurricane? Is it some other thing mm-hmm. that's going to trigger these? There are a number of world-renowned scientists working on that. Headed up by the Fish and Wildlife Research Institute down Mm. in St. Pete, along with, you know, universities and what, I mean, mean, there's some of the best researchers in the world Mm. on red tide organism. The other piece of that is once you have a red tide event, what do you do about it? Are there ways to lessen it? Are there ways to kill it? And that's where, you know, organizations like Moat Marine Mm. come in. They have been, over the last five years, have been doing tests on hundreds of different methods to try and ameliorate red tide. Hmm. And as you know, dealing with science agencies, science doesn't happen fast. You know, you can find something that'll kill red tide, but what else is it going to kill?
0: That's right. That's right. right.
1: I mean, you don't want to go out there and, oh, we have the solution, run out there and then kill everything in the Gulf of Mexico. Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah,
1: so you know, and you start and when you're doing these scientific research, you start at small scale, so desktop scale, then you go to little a little bit larger and then you do field testing. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes time. But Moat um, has been has been working very diligently on
0: that. Nice.
1: And for updates, you know, I mean uh, this is all, in the public domain if for people that are interested in finding out the current status on Red Tide.
0: Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll put a bunch of, of links as I find them from yeah. Fish and Wildlife and, and Moat on the episode notes. That way people can uh, uh, check that out for themselves. Um, now I want to get to some of the more uh, rote questions that <laughs> I tend to ask other, you know, other folks. Uh, what professional accomplishment are you most proud of?
1: So when I was getting ready to retire, a colleague of mine that I worked with, with from the National Fish and Wildlife uh, Foundation in D.C. came down and asked me a very similar question, but a little bit different. His question was, what were your top five things hmm. in your career that you're most proud of? And it, it was—it took me a while, honestly, hmm. because there there are a number of things that I was fortunate enough to deal with. I mean... I think some of, some of them, at least for me, they're not going to be very exciting to your listeners, I'm sure. You know, when we first started Everglades Restoration, and we were building the first stormwater treatment area, well, the federal government said, you guys need a permit for that. And the only permit was for a, you know, a basically a pollution source Dish, it's it's a national pollution discharge elimination system permit right. or an NPDES permit. We're like, well, that doesn't fit a restoration project, <laughs> right? And they said, well, you got to figure it out. So I mean, you know, lot of lot of back and forth. Yeah. We we figured out a way to permit those under that system. Um, so that was a big deal.
0: Yeah, that is a big deal.
1: Um, you know, getting SERP f- across the finish line in Congress.
0: Yeah, that's huge.
1: That was big. Um, one of the more recent ones the going back to the gulf oil spill the criminal penalties went to the national fish and wildlife mm-hmm. foundation and you know getting those restoration projects up and running and you know yep. funded i mean that was maybe not in water world but in fish and wildlife world 356 million dollars worth of projects is a lot of a lot of projects.
0: Well, in, in Northwest Florida Water World, that's a lot of projects. Yes, so, and we were happy at, at the. I know I was at the Water Management District right. at the time, and and we were the beneficiary of a lot of those. And and remember, we had folks working with absolutely you know, with Fish and Wildlife as well. And uh, it was a, a, an incredible process and a collaborative one. And a lot of places, you know, uh, experienced a, a ton of benefit that n- may never have happened. Sure. I mean, otherwise. you're right, because when you think about, I mean,
1: you know, I look at, you know, fisheries, fisheries management in the Gulf of Mexico, $25 million from the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund mm-hmm. uh, went to that, upwards of 70 plus million for Apalachicola Bay restoration. That wouldn't have happened, but for this terribly tragic event yeah um so you know some good comes out of that
0: yeah and and really that was you know how uh, we looked at it as well which was this is a really bad thing that has happened Uh, a huge number of people's lives were impacted uh and you know entire swaths of, of the gulf coast were were severely impacted but if not for that All of these, all of those things that you just mentioned in places that are suffering like the Apalachicola uh, River and Bay to have the opportunity to do some things that simply don't meet the threshold of high priorities otherwise, but to have the availability of that from those, you know, those penalties to go back in and and be able to to affect some of that, that restoration and uh, enhancement, you know, beyond that. Right. It's enormous, enormous.
1: It is enormous, and, you know, that's just kind of the front end, right? I mean, some of the the money that went to National Fish and Wildlife Foundation was from the criminal settlement. The civil penalties, I mean, they're not even paid out yet. Hmm. We're going to be seeing some benefit from that until, you know, 2035,
0: somewhere in there. Don't spill oil is the moral of the story. Yeah. Is there anything that you see as left undone that you've had, if you'd had more time and no, I'm not suggesting that, Hey, give it another decade, but if given a little bit more time, that there's something that you might've wanted to tackle.
1: Yes. I mean, you know, I could sit here and say, you know, yes, I wanted to see restoration of Apalachicola Bay or, you know, those things are going to move forward. There's a lot of really smart talented people that have taken up the ball, that's going to happen. There were two things that were really more of a personal thing for me that I couldn't get across the finish line because they were either too complicated or I just didn't have enough time. One of which was, or is, affordable housing issues for staff, especially in the Keys, but South Florida in general. We saw a lot of issues after Hurricane Irma, when Mm. so many people were displaced. You know, when you're right out of college, and you're paid not an awful lot of money, you Mm -hmm. can't find a place to live. So you end up working three, sometimes four jobs to to pay rent. So that was a big Mm. issue. I'm hopeful now somebody else much smarter than me is going to be able to tackle that because I recognize that that is an issue statewide. The other issue is um, something that was much more personal, which is it was a legislative issue. I just couldn't get enough traction because I started it a little bit late, but it has to do with staff that have contracted Lyme disease to try to get some sort of coverage for them. Uh, We had some instances where risk management denied claims because Lyme disease is one of those things where it's hard to know did you get the tick bite when you were on the job, or was it when you were walking through your backyard? And Florida, up until you know a few years ago, mm. we, we weren't a big uh, Lyme disease state. Right. But everything's coming south, and uh, so now it is a big issue. And we had a number of employees that were impacted by that. And that one, I think I just started a little bit too late.
0: Do you think one of the, the solutions there, I'm just yeah thinking about it, is... What what were what were the things that you were looking at in terms of like uh, some sort of disability insurance riders? I mean, or? there were
1: a number of things that you, we were not going to be making this up uh, wholesale, <laughs> wholesale, right? We looked at other states, sure, because other states had um, any number of ways to address this, including insurance riders. So that's an issue. The other one is if you have a certain type of job. That requires you to be outside, that if you contract Lyme disease, you're presumed to have gotten it on the job Mm -hmm. without having to make that demonstration that, nope, I was, I was collecting fish or, you know, whatever in the marsh. So there, I mean, there was, there's a number of ways to deal with it. It just, it's, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. And of course it does. It was not solely an FWC issue. Because water management district employees Absolutely. are out in the field. DEP employees, forest service employees are out in the field. So it no, was it's, a,
0: a, it's an interesting subject you bring up is like, I, I, I don't recall that being something that, you know, we talked about at the water management district. But you, I had 13 people, like I had a small agency. Right. Uh, and you have... Lord knows how many people that are land managers, wildlife, you know, biologists, mm-hmm. you know, you know, law enforcement who are out in the woods, right? You know, doing these sorts of things. So it's it, obviously it has to be much more prevalent. Are you optimistic about the future of the environment in Florida and why? Either way, uh,
1: yes, I am. There are, I mentioned it before, but when I when I think about you know when I left the agency. You know, some people. I, I I don't know. My sense is that a lot of people think, "Oh, I'm leaving, and nobody can do it as be- <laughs> as you know as well as I did." Or, <laughs> and and I look and I look back and think, "Oh my gosh, there are so many people that are smarter than me, yeah. younger than me, have more energy than me. We're in good hands. They're gonna it's gonna be. Um, they're gonna do good things." You know, I think there's any. Any environmental issue that the state is facing, you can look at it and fall down the despair, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, my gosh, it takes so long. You're never going to get there. But I think if you continue to look at the small incremental wins mm-hmm. and know where you're trying to go and if you've got the the people, the, um, the resources, which is a big issue, and I know on one of your other comments, uh, Podcasts you talked a lot about you know at least the monetary resources mm-hmm. financial resources yeah um, you know with that i am I'm, I'm optimistic about it but i't don't, I don't like to get too depressed about things like that
0: I mean does that come with the years of experience seeing that incremental change over over time that that gives you that optimism do you think or is it just the recognition that uh Smarter people than us exist, and and they're gonna go. They're gonna go get after it, and and it's gonna it'll work in the end.
1: I think it's a combination of both. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say Brett that you and I weren't are uh, aren't smart, um, <laughs> but I just I, I know there's people behind us that are gonna do good things. Sure, sure. Um, You know, these are all the issues that we deal with. All the issues that you've talked to your uh, other guests about are big complex issues and the one thing that um, I wish everyone would understand is when somebody says well they've been working on this project for 30 years and it's still not done well it's not like the people that started it 30 years ago didn't know what the heck they were doing it's just a big, complicated issue that has all sorts of ramifications that you have to take into consideration as you move forward. And it's not easy. If mm. it was easy, Everglades would have been done 20 <laughs> years ago.
0: <laughs> I had the sense that that's what you were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, but, well, I mean, but to to the, to then ask you to go to the um the pessimist side of things is there anything that keeps you up at night that you look at from an environmental sense a habitat sense a wildlife sense a water sense they're like man i'm really i'm really worried about that fred Ashour had a great one um with pfas you know and, and those types of things there's I mean, there, and that
1: should keep fred up at night right <laughs> exactly <laughs> um i think that you know i try not to at this point in my retired life, I try not to let things keep me up at night. But the one environmental issue that I think we are going to all need to grapple with and figure out how to deal with is is climate issues. Mm. I mean, I think some of your other guests probably have said that. Whatever you believe on why it's happening, um, it's there are changes happening. And it is impacting local governments. It's impacting the state, it's impacting the water man I mean it's it's something we're gonna have to yeah to come to ter- come to terms with.
0: I think in I am heartened by seeing the level of attention that that we're getting to the the resilient side. I have a yes I have partners here that are experts in that sort of thing and they seem heartened by it. at least this is recognition. It's a it's hard. It's easier sometimes to whistle past a graveyard um, when it comes to that, then deal because it's a, it's an expensive. It's very
1: problem. expensive, and it's it's complicated, right, right? Right. I mean, you've got a bunch of people living in areas that are going to potentially be inundated with seawater. I mean, that's right. that's that is hard to grapple with. But you're right; there are there are a number of local governments or organizations that are really trying to take the next step forward to try to address that issue.
0: What advice would you give young people who are either just starting out, like you said, or that are thinking about doing what you did so well for 30 years?
1: Number one, do it. (laughs) I mean, it's hard, it's frustrating, but the rewards are, I think the rewards are great. Um, Personal rewards, mm. obviously not monetary rewards, <laughs> but personal rewards are great. Um, the other piece of advice, I think, the thing that helped me the most is listening to people, talking to people, and finding a really good mentor. And that could be one or two, depend. you know, one, two, sure. ten, however. But don't come in thinking you know everything. There's a lot of people that have a lot of background and that are we- more more than willing to help
0: i like it on that note jennifer fitzwater thank you so much for coming on the show it's been a lot of fun
1: thanks brett i appreciate it
0: well that's it for this episode thanks for listening to water for fighting if you're enjoying the show please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use and don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review you can follow the show on linkedin and instagram at fl water Pod. And you can reach me directly at flwaterpod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production for this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sworn for making the best of what he had to work with. And to Dave Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for this podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free. And you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer.